Have you ever been caught off guard by a glance in a mirror that shows you to look far more like your father or mother than you realized? Maybe you've even recently used an expression one of your parents regularly used or made a decision only later to realize how much your folks have actually shaped your thinking. Eventually, most adults find themselves to be more like their parents than they ever would have dreamed, in both good ways and bad. You know, just as parents, grandparents, or or other key figures have had a profound influence on each of us, we are influencing others, especially those younger than we are. Our children, but also a younger person in our church, a younger coworker, and so on. Whether we have children or not, each of us will leave a legacy comprised of our attitudes, character, and life choices that will impact others. Now, in the last lesson, we learned of God's judgment on Adam and Eve. Eventually, they would return to dust. And Genesis 4 and 5 indicates that that was exactly what happened. Adam and Eve's son, Abel, was murdered. And then, throughout Adam's genealogy, that phrase, and then he died, is repeated. But there's something more going on in these chapters. Remember that Genesis 3.15 prophesied that two seeds would emerge, that of the woman, Eve, and that of the serpent, who represents Satan. The verse also predicts the crushing of the serpent's head by the seed of the woman, an event Jews and Christians alike have understood as a messianic prophecy. So Genesis 4 and 5 traces the early development of this prophecy through two emerging lines of humanity with opposite bents. Cain and his descendants, who are the seed of the serpent. According to 1 John 3.12, Cain belonged to the evil one. And after Abel was murdered, Seth replaced him as the progenitor of the woman's seed. Genesis 4.26 tells us that Seth's descendants called on the name of the Lord. These two brothers left legacies that impacted their descendants, legacies of character and attitudes. From that time forward, two lines of humanity have always existed. Those who are true God worshipers and those who live in rebellion against him. The seed of the serpent is the line of faithless, godless, fallen humanity, while the seed of the woman is the line of faith filled, regenerated, redeemed humanity. Well, apparently Cain and Abel were the first of many sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and the boys' characters were surely developing during the years they were growing up. Now, there are some who have suggested that Eve had God's promise of a deliverer in mind when she bore her firstborn, her first son, Cain and that probably she spoiled him by making him the center of her hopes and dreams. That can't be proven. But a lot of parents spoil more than one or more of their children by making them 
too central in focus in their lives, so it wouldn't be totally surprising if Eve made that mistake. Sometime later, we're told, Abel was born. Genesis 4 tells of an event in which specific life choices revealed Cain and Abel's true nature. Cain was selfish and Abel was not. Now Cain, we're told that Cain worked the soil while Abel kept flocks. There are some who try to make a spiritual, take a spiritual meaning from this. You know, maybe that Cain's work with the soil somehow associated him with the curse, while Abel's work with animals associated him with life before the curse. But we can't say with any certainty that one occupation was better than the other. If you think about it, Adam must have had both roles. Now, verse 3 tells us that after a period of time, Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. Cain brought some fruit, while Abel brought fat portions from his flock's firstborn. Why were they bringing offerings? Well, in the time of Moses, who recorded Genesis, God clearly mandated a system of animal sacrifices to atone for sin. But prior to Moses' time, there's no conclusive evidence that any such mandate had been issued. Cain and Abel's offerings, they may simply have been expressions of worship. Now, the text indicates that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's. The Bible doesn't say exactly how Cain and Abel knew this, but the more important question concerns why one of the offerings was acceptable. Why only one? Some have suggested the problem lay with Cain's offering, but the text says on Cain and his offering, the Lord didn't look with favor. The problem must have involved both the man and his offering. Now, in ancient times, the fat was the premier portion of the animal. The fact that Abel chose the best portion from the firstborn, the dearest of the flock, suggests that his gift was costly. To offer one's best requires faith of us, doesn't it? Faith that God will provide for our needs. We've given our best. But that is true worship. Hebrews 11.4 indicates that Abel is still relevant today as an example of faith. Now, by contrast, Cain merely brought some of the fruits of the field. He selfishly kept the best for himself and brought the Lord what was left. My friends, that is a description of formalistic worship. It was what Cain felt obligated to do. His inferior offering was certainly a reflection of an inferior attitude toward God. The Bible repeatedly shows heart attitude to be the determining factor in the acceptability of worship. Well, the Lord's rejection of Cain and his offering forced a crisis upon Cain. Verse 5 tells us that Cain was very unhappy. His sullenness was written all over his face, all over his countenance. Rebellion was about to overtake him. God knew Cain's unchecked anger would result in sinful choices. He was gracious and eager to assist Cain in his crisis. He encouraged Cain that he'd had equal opportunity with Abel to be accepted. 
God graciously offered Cain room for repentance, warning him that sin was like an animal that crouches to pounce on its prey. Cain needed to master this temptation. And then the Lord set a choice before Cain to turn from resentment, lest it consume him, and he act further on it. Cain certainly could have driven his thoughts into positive channels. He could have chosen to work, focus on his work until his temper cooled off a bit. He could have dwelt on God's good promises to his family and many provisions. He could have humbled himself in recognition of his need. We have the same choice. Sin crouches at the door of our hearts, waiting to pounce on us if we open the door to it. But Jesus also stands at the door. The door of our hearts, he stands waiting to fellowship with us and to deliver us from temptation. We choose to whom we'll open our heart's door. Well, Cain failed to hear, heed God's warning. He attacked and killed Abel. First John 3.12 tells us that Cain murdered Abel because Abel was righteous and that Cain chose to align himself with the evil one. You know, those who live in opposition to God have always resented the good ways of God's people whose righteous deeds stir up their guilty consciences. After the murder the Lord came to Cain in divine judgment. First, he gave Cain an opportunity to confess his sins by asking where his brother was. Cain lied and denied that he knew what had happened. His response, am I my brother's keeper, revealed his underlying bitterness and defiance. Then God put Cain under a twofold curse, the failure of the ground to produce crops for him and a life of restless wandering. Rather than contemplating the severity of his sin, Cain complained about the severity of his punishment. Look at verses 13 and 14 where Cain said, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Poor me. Such is the response of the person who's already convinced themselves that God isn't fair. In response to Cain's complaint, the Lord put a mark of some kind on Cain so that no one would, who found him would kill him. Although many people have ventured guesses about Cain's mark, the Bible doesn't say what it was. Now, Cain's fear of being killed was reasonable, though, since Family members of a murdered individual generally want vengeance. Genesis 5, 5 says Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Over the course of Adam's 930-year lifespan, the total number of family members would have grown quickly. Some estimate to as many as 10,000. And any number of these might have sought vengeance. Cain was banished from the region of Eden and went to live in the land of Nod to Eden's east. And as far as the scripture records, he never again returned to the Lord's presence. You know, 
Cain's response to the Lord's rejection of his offering revealed his inner character. One set of parents can raise two children who choose very different attitudes in life. Abel chose to love God. Hebrews 11.4 calls him a man of faith. It was by faith, it says, that Cain, that Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. It was because of his faith that he was commended as, a right, as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. By contrast, Cain harbored a root of bitterness, a root of bitterness. Now, we don't know all that transpired in Cain's life prior to this unworthy sacrifice, but we can fairly assume that Cain and Abel were well aware of their parents' fall and their banishment from the garden. Surely their parents had told them and told them of the former glory of the garden and their lives with God. That knowledge surely left Cain and Abel with the same choice their parents faced, a choice of attitude toward the hard work and frustrations in life that resulted from the fall. They could accept the deserved judgment or they could resent it. It seems reasonable to assume that Cain had struggled with inner resentments prior to his bringing the offering. All the attitudes Cain had indulged up to the point of his sacrifice were revealed by his response to the crisis that occurred when God rejected him. And that leads us to our first principle, which is that our true characters are revealed in crises. Our true characters are revealed in crises. Cain had a sullen, resentful attitude. Crises don't create attitudes. They merely expose them. I love what well-known pastor and author Chuck Swindoll has to say about attitude. He's written, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me, is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is, we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced, he writes, that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. You know, eventually some kind of crisis will reveal our characters for what they truly are. 
And what's especially concerning is that those watching our lives will be influenced. Which bad attitude will you ask God to help you permanently change before it leads you and those over whom you have influence into serious trouble? Well, the remainder of chapter 4 indicates that Cain's rebellion influenced his descendants for generations. Verse 17 unexpectedly mentions Cain's wife without telling us where she came from. Now, modern scientists defend the unity of the race, and according to the Bible, Adam and Eve were the sole originating parents. This means Cain's wife could only have been another descendant of Adam and Eve probably his sister. Close inbreeding apparently didn't create, you know, the genetic and biological issues we see today and, and, and apparently didn't create those until much later in history. The Bible tells us also that Abraham married his half-sister and Moses married his aunt. Moses' father married his aunt. Now, although God had told Cain that he'd be a restless wanderer, verse 17 tells us that Cain defiantly built a city for himself, refusing to wander. Maybe it was a self-styled attempt to fill the void of living away from God's presence and provide security of some kind for his growing family that he thought was security anyway. Without God, Cain turned his attention to earthly matters and his descendants apparently did the same. At first, it might have been surprising for you to read that Cain's descendants were responsible for cultural and technological advances. We read of musical instruments and Bedouin life and the forging of tools in addition to building the city. All seemingly good things. However, in the light of the clear contrast that's made between the lines of Cain in chapter 4 and the line of Seth in chapter 5, the point of mentioning these accomplishments of Cain's descendants seemed to be that like their forefather, Cain's descendants sought temporal pleasures. They put God's gifts in a place that belonged to God alone. Culture and the arts were their gods. And can't the same be said about the great empires throughout history? Education, culture, the sciences, the arts, they have been and continue to be their gods. The first thing we learn about Cain's descendant Lamech is that he married two women. Lamech was the father of polygamy. Furthermore, he boasted of vengeance killing. One scholar renders Lamech's poem like this. Ada and Zilla, listen to me. Pay attention to me, to what I say, you wives. I would kill a man because he wounded me. I'd even destroy a child for bruising me. So if Cain costs seven lives, kill me and it will cost you 77. Hmm. Apparently, Lamech arrogantly concluded he could do whatever he wanted with impunity. He needed no one's forgiveness. By contrast, you learned this week that Jesus told Peter a God follower should be humble enough to forgive 
endlessly. Both of those passages use the number 77 as a symbol of endless. The point is that Cain's selfish, defiant, and resentful attitude was handed down to subsequent generations. He handed down a legacy of pride and rebellion against God. We might call this the Cainite culture, the culture of the seed of the serpent. Our second principle is that specific sins can become generational unless they're submitted to God. They can become generational unless they're submitted to God. Don't you and I know it? And scientific and sociological research confirms that certain tendencies for both good and evil are handed down within families. Most adults wouldn't need to think very hard to identify a particular sin they struggle with that also plagued one of their parents or grandparents. In some cases, genetics play a factor. In others, the sociological influence of family plays a larger role. But it may also be that demons, who are cunning, intelligent, and have lived throughout human history, study the character of our forefathers, look for similar weaknesses in us, even from the time we're young, and prey on them. Satan is a defeated foe and has no claim on Christians. Nevertheless, God has permitted him limited power to try to mislead us. So what are we to do? Well, it does little good to just pray the next generation won't inherit our weaknesses if we aren't willing to let God first change us as an example to our children of what God can do when our weaknesses are submitted to him. We must show our children and those over whom we have influence what it looks like to keep growing in Christ even into the last years of our lives and to continually set aside specific sins. We can begin by identifying the specific sin and the lies that we feed ourselves in order to justify it. We should then seek scriptural truth to combat our rationalizations, and we should seek practical help, such as the accountability of a friend or counselor and the replacement of former habits with new ones, like reading, scripture memorization, or serving others to fill those idle moments, going to bed and rising at a different time, or spending our free time with healthier people. So let me ask you, with God's help, which generational sins will you determine to end? Well, the last verses of chapter 4 and the first verses of chapter 5 contrast the wickedness of Cain's descendants with the righteousness of Seth's. With Abel dead, and Cain disqualified as that seed who would crush Eve's enemy, Eve delighted in the birth of her son, Seth. Then when Seth's son, Enosh, was born, it became all the more certain that God was raising up a new line in place of Abel, it says here, through whom 
he would God would fulfill his promise to Eve. Eve, verse 26 says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, most scholars understand this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, to refer to worship, probably corporate worship. Scholars Kyle and DeLich conclude, while the family of Canaanites, by the erection of a city and the invention and development of worldly arts and business, were laying the foundation for the kingdom of this world, the family of Sethites began by united invocation of the name of God of grace to found and to erect the kingdom of God. What a contrast. Genesis 5.5 tells us that Adam lived 930 years. Now, the longest recorded life in the Bible is also mentioned in Genesis 5. Methuselah, Methuselah lived 969 years. You might have wondered, what, is the Bible, what do Bible scholars have to say about the length of life that's listed here, the length of life of these ancient people? And there are several theories that have been proposed. One idea is that the years in Genesis are based on a system of arithmetic that's no longer known to us, some ancient system. A second thought is that each patriarch intended to, is intended to represent an entire tribe of people and that the years given are the years of the tribe, not just the one individual. But the traditional view is that the ages are literal and reflect an antediluvian pre-flood era in which the climate allowed exceptional lifespans and the full effect of sin hadn't taken its toll, its full toll on the, the human body yet. Of course, longer lifespans would have contributed to a rapid increase in human population. New Bible students often wonder why the Bible contains so many genealogies and whether they have significance. Preserving a record of a life may have stemmed in part from the desire for eternal significance, especially since the fall separated people from the fellowship they were intended to share with their creator. And of course, genealogies are also practical. They're a practical way of preserving history for future generations. As the population on earth began to grow, at some point, not every living person would be able to recall the, the roots of every other living person. And so a genealogy offered proof of one's heritage, and it aided the memory of future generations. But the specific purpose of most biblical genealogies is to trace God's promise, to send mankind a deliverer to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That promise was the basis of forward-looking faith for all these early patriarchs. They were watching and waiting for the birth of this person. The writer Moses draws special attention to several of the men in the genealogy in chapter 5. Seth's son Enosh was born at the time when public worship began. By contrast, Cain's firstborn, Enoch, is known for building the first city. Seth had a descendant named Enoch as well, and Chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that this Enoch walked faithfully with God, a phrase in the Bible that often describes fellowship and obedience to God, exactly what human beings were created for. 
Then we're told that Enoch was no more because God took him away. In the biblical record, only Elijah shares this experience of translation into heaven without physical death. The last descendant in both Cain and Seth's lines is named Lamech. And the comparison between the two extends beyond their names, for in both lists, only the Lamechs speak. But it's immediately obvious that this isn't the same individual. Not only do the two Lamechs descend from different lines, they're characterized in entirely different ways. Each Lamech epitomizes the spiritual condition of his ancestors. Cain's descendant Lamech was a polygamist who boasted about his vengeful and murderous spirit, while Seth's descendant Lamech anticipated the fulfillment of God's promise, hoping God's blessing would come through his son Noah. While Cain's descendants represent faithless, godless, fallen humanity, Seth's descendants represent faith filled, regenerated, redeemed humanity. Like his forefathers, Adam and Seth, Lamech put his hope in God's promise. And like Adam, Seth, and Lamech, we each have the opportunity to leave behind a legacy of faith. That's a point I hope you're getting. And to make sure you are, I've included it as the third principle in this lesson that we each have the opportunity to leave behind a legacy of faith. I can trace my own confidence in the Lord to my parents' example. A few times as I grew up, my father faced major career decisions. What I recall most about these situations was my parents' confidence that the Lord would give them direction. Then once the Lord's answer came, I witnessed their obedient response. Time and again, I have seen my parents put their hope in the Lord. And oh, do I praise God for the impression it's made on me. And this is exactly what Seth and his descendants did. They called on the name of the Lord and put their hope in him and his promises. Imagine the impact. Just imagine the impact we can have on our children, regardless of their age, our co-workers, also believers who are less mature in the faith, and others who observe our lives, if we will actively put our hope in God. I once sat in the lecture of a seminary professor with this amazing spiritual heritage. Among his close relatives are Bible scholars and martyred missionaries, some of the names you may recognize. And I listened as he humbly encouraged those who were present by telling us the story of the wretched life of his grandfather and how his grandfather came to faith in Christ. And he concluded this way, you may not have the family history with which I've been blessed, but you can, like my grandfather, begin such a legacy. You know, 
every spiritually rich family heritage begins with one individual who chooses to trust in God's promised deliverer, Jesus Christ, and models their faith by instruction and daily living to the next generation. To whom will you model a very real hope in God this week? In so many ways, each of us is like our parents and others who've influenced us. But once we have trusted Jesus to save us, we can choose new habits and patterns of thinking to pass on to the next generation. We will all leave some kind of legacy for those who follow us. What kind will you choose to leave? Let's pray together about this. Father, oh, we just cringe to think that we would leave anything less than a very rich spiritual heritage. It is our great desire to do that. Father, we give ourselves to you and we ask you, Father, to point out to us these generational sins. We commit ourselves to you and ask you, Lord, that you will begin to transform us, change us. We submit ourselves to your life and give you permission to break bad habits and to do what only you can do. Father, we ask this for the sake of your glory and for the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, chapters four and five end with Noah's birth, and our next two lessons are going to cover his life. Oh.